Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. We are so excited to announce our first Sandbox live event for the upcoming year. Regina Mustafa will join us at Sandbox Live on October 30th. Regina lives in Rochester, Minnesota, and is a founder of Community Interfaith Dialogue on Islam, a local organization focused on sharing reliable and accessible information on Islam, as well as promoting healthy interfaith dialogue. Regina will be sharing with us some common misunderstandings about our Muslim neighbors, the struggles and joys of living in the United States as a Muslim, particularly given our current political and social climate, and helping us ask a very important question together. Why is interfaith dialogue so important? And maybe even more at the heart of it, why is it important for each of us to be in relationship with those who aren't like us? Now, if you haven't participated in a live event before, here's what you need to know for October 30th. If you are in our area or anywhere close, we will gather at Studio 324 in downtown Rochester, Minnesota. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. and the event begins at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you want to join us online, you can head to sandboxcooperative.com a few minutes before 7 and you'll be able to watch from there. Following Regina's presentation, the audience, both in-house and online, will have the opportunity for a Q&A where we can dig in a bit deeper. After the live event, Look out for a Sandbox meetup. This will be a good way for us to gather and share in continued conversation after the event and ask more good questions together. And if you aren't anywhere near us but would like to do a Sandbox meetup on your own, we will provide all the resources you need to host a conversation with your people wherever in the world you are. Check for details following the live event. We can't wait to have you all join us for this exciting event, but for now, here's episode 28, the OG Rev, Harry Williams. Welcome to the Sandbox. Today, we're excited to share with you a little bit about the work of Harry Williams, also known as the OG Rev. A lot of his work centers around challenging issues of systemic injustice, such as poverty and gentrification, and his story is a call to action for us to take our faith and move it further toward real impact in our lives and in our communities. Here's a little fun fact for you. Harry was a fixture in the underground hip-hop movement of the early 1980s in New York City. His group was featured on a BBC documentary about the growth of the hip-hop movement. Get this, back then... He was known as the Incredible Mr. Freeze. I'm just upset the name was already taken. My name is Reverend Harry Lewis Williams II. In the streets, people either call me Rev or OG Rev. And I live here, I live in Oakland, California. I was born in New York City. And I grew up in the, uh, in the era when hip-hop was just burgeoning above ground. Mm. And in fact, I was at a club called Club Negril in the early 20s when Africa Bambada and, and his and the Zulu Nation would come down and perform, and that changed the entire world because mm. it brought hip-hop culture from the inner cities to a place where it could be heard by people from every every culture. Every walk of life. Yes. Yeah. So that also had connected me to, and then spiritually that was also a beacon for me mm. because I saw how this music could transform people and how mm. if you thought outside of the box, you could bring great great things to people so ministry wise I've, I've i've taken that same mantle to mm. try to bring the gospel ministry to people who would, might not ordinarily walk inside of a church mm. and so there's so much to say about my life yeah I, I, yeah um do you want Keep me to going. Yeah. okay yeah 
Okay, well, I became a Christian. I was born in a Christian household. Uh, my mother was an evangelist. She worked with Child Evangelism Vision Fellowship. Uh, and my, I had great parents. My father was an engineer. My mother was a school teacher. But as a young person, I really strayed away from that. Uh, in my early 20s, um, I, I came to know the Lord as my Savior, and it was an incredible experience. And, uh, but for years, I was still didn't kind of drifting, didn't know mm -hmm. exactly what God's call upon my life was. And, uh, and then what happened was in, in the early, my early 30s, I went to a church called the Cathedral in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and I heard this pit preacher named Bishop Donald Hillier Jr. Mm -hmm. And you can look him up on the, the cathedral.org. Okay. He was the most amazing preacher that I'd ever heard mm -hmm. because he was a preacher who could preach to people in the Pentagon and the pool hall. Okay. <laughs> he was so real. Wow. And, and just he, it, he transformed my life. And he made me understand that the gospel had to be real for people who were not your traditional churchgoers. Mm -hmm. And so fast forwarding, I, I told him, I told his assistant pastor, I felt called to the ministry. Mm -hmm. And she told me three words that changed my entire life. She said, go to college. Okay. And I said, I, I was expecting her to say, well, you're going to have to fast or go into the <laughs> desert or something, you know, something like that. Yeah. She said, no, go to college. Yeah. And so I went to college and I got a bachelor's, bachelor of arts degree from Kane University in Union, New Jersey. Okay. Then I went up to seminary school and uh, was the name of the seminary is called Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Then it became Palmer Theological Seminary. Okay. It was uh, in Wynwood, Pennsylvania, right on the edge of Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, when I came out of school, I thought there would be all kinds of opportunities opening, and, but the path was not, that was not the path that God had for me. I wanted to be a pastor. Okay. I'm going to really fast forward. I ended, up okay. in a, I ended up in Oakland, California. And in Oakland, uh, I taught at a small Christian college. Okay. One night, a young man said, uh, I gave the students a break. And I said, you guys get something to eat, and I'll come back in 10 minutes, we'll begin the class again. The young man said, uh, Professor, where are you going? You know, I said, well, I'm, I thought that was pretty strange because I'm a growing man. He's asking me where I'm going. Right. I said, well, I live about a block away from here. And he said, don't walk it. He said, don't walk. It was just about dusk. And he begged me not to walk. He said, I've mm. got a car. I'll drive you. Don't walk it. And I said, you know, I've lived in some dangerous neighborhoods. I was mm -hmm. living um, East New York, Brooklyn, hung out in Brownsville. I lived in Harlem at the height of the crack epidemic. Okay. So, you know, this is, I mean, here's, yeah. you're in California, there's palm trees out here. What are, right. you, what are you talking about? <laughs> so anyway, I let him drive me home. Yeah. But about a week later, I realized why he did not want me to walk home. I was laying in my bed watching TV, and all of a sudden, it, I heard a barrage of gunfire outside. Mm. It sounded like um, Fallujah at the height of the Iraq mm. War. Mm. And, uh, and What year was this, This way? This was 2002. Okay. So, uh, I'm, you know, you could hear a heavy gauge gunfire and people were turning fire. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you saw the, uh, we call them ghetto vultures. It's the police helicopter shining a light down on the, on the uh, front of the house in the courtyard. And you're wondering just, what is, it, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. The next morning, I, I woke up and I walked outside and I went to the corner and there was a shrine. And um, people had already come there and put flowers down and put bottles of Remy Martin and and uh, you know it was uh, saw, you know little notices for the person who had lost their life. Mm. And I realized mm. that this was a way of life in this community. There was a drug gang that controlled the whole community. Mm. So at the school that I once I taught at, I, they asked me to teach an evangelism class, and they said the thing about it is we're going to send these young people out into the community, but they said uh, you don't have to go. 
You can stay mm-hmm. right here. You know, in the hour or two that they go out, you stay right here in the classroom. Nobody's expecting you to actually do this. Yeah. And I said, who's going to respect the evangelism professor who stays in here right. and explains to them what to do when they hit a rough spot outside? Right, right. And so my whole life changed when I walked mm-hmm. out through those doors because I realized that there were no churches that had any any power to do anything in that community. No one had. I'd go into school to prepare myself for ministry behind the walls of a church, mm-hmm. but the church did not fulfill the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. Because if it did, with all the resources that it possessed, it would be able to transform that neighborhood. And I began to meet drug dealers, and uh, there was an organized situation where they had lookouts, and, and they had hitters on the corners, and they would make thousands of dollars in changing hands out there every single day. Mm-hmm. And so I walked up to a young man one day, and I said, excuse me, to, I said, bro, let me ask you a question. I said, you're out here risking your life. You're not making a lot of money because the way that it works is that there's somebody who's not taking the risk, who doesn't, who's not out there on that block, who actually makes all the money, mm-hmm. and they actually sell the drugs on consignment. So I said, you're not making a lot of money out here. You probably make more money working at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I have a record, and once you get a once you get a record, you can't, you can't, I can't get a job at Best Buy. I can't get a job at Target, mm-hmm. and I need to put pampers on my baby's bottom. Mm-hmm. And so you started realizing that a lot of what they were doing out there was was economically based because they're not really making any money, yet they're risking their lives. I remember mm-hmm. uh, talking to a young man there, and, and he kind of laughed when I, I told him about, you know, we, he needed to consider another way of life. And about a year later, I will open up the newspaper, and there his picture was. He had been murdered out there in that corner. Mm-hmm. So I started realizing that there's a cross-section of the community that's... Uh, that's um, just cut off from the greater, from the mainstream. Yeah. There's a writer, his name is Eugene Rivers. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, his name was um, uh, Eugene Robinson. He, okay. he's, a, he's a commentator who writes for the, uh, uh, for the Washington Post. Okay. And he wrote a book a, a while back about black America. Mm-hmm. And he talked about this one, one segment of the community he called the abandoned. And what you really said was their situation is worse than the black, situation of black people was at the beginning of, uh, uh, at, at, the, at the height of chattel slavery. So you mm. saw that these people have been greatly impacted by the, the prison incarceration um, problem that we have in America, yeah. the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that changed my entire life because I realized that if I was going to be a believer and true to the, to the tenets of the gospel, I'd have to find a way to reach these people and not only give them a message of hope for the afterlife, but to, to start talking about some of the things that create a world where people die so young. So taking the church, like you said, you know, if, if the church was, was doing what it was called to do and using the resources that it had, it would be outside the walls. And here you are discovering and, and, and working to make for change outside the walls of a church. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a bit of your story. Can what's led you to this point? Yes. Specifically, right now, what what are you working on? What ache are you addressing in your in your community? Uh, so, uh, systemic injustice is the mm-hmm. ache that I'm addressing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read the book of Amos, or if you read uh, Isaiah mm-hmm. chapter 48, mm-hmm. you find that God is very concerned about injustice in society. So we're at the we're at the height of the election cycle, and. Uh, Yesterday on Facebook, uh, I, I went to see um, Bernie Sanders yesterday. Okay. And, and uh, so you, if you look at my Facebook page, you see a picture of he and I shaking hands. Okay. And so, um, you know, he had some good things to say. Yeah, yeah. And, 
uh, a friend. I have a friend who lives in the Central Valley, you know, which is which is very conservative, and he's saying, "How is he turning this nation back to God?" You know, you know. He's he's um, some for Trump. I have friends at every end of the sp- political spectrum. Okay, so <laughs> so somebody is wondering how Bernie is going to turn America back to God, and they're in favor of Trump. Yes. Wow. Because Trump has been heralded as this as the second coming by many many of the oh. evangelical leadership, yeah, yeah. members of. The I mean, US. I've heard that, but oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So all you have to do is say Jesus enough times, you, you're good to go. <laughs> and it works. Huh? <laughs> you're right. You're good Keep to that go. in mind. <laughs> yes. Oh man. So yeah. he wasn't concerned about the the fact that this this gentleman wants to build a a wall. And, you know, and, and mm-hmm. across the southern border and deport 11 million people and that he said negative things about Latino people and Muslim people. Mm-hmm. The thing is, uh, how is he going to turn the nation back to Jesus? And, uh, and so what I'm yeah. starting to realize yeah. is that God, we have a, an imbalanced Christianity. We have mm-hmm. a, a, a Christianity where we can all agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died, that he rose again on the third day. Mm. And that um, through commitment to him, we have eternal life. But but that's a one-sided. Ron Sider wrote a book called One-Sided Christianity. It, was, okay. it changed my whole life. And no, what, what's his name again? Ron Sider. Okay. He's a social activist from, okay. from back east. Okay. And uh, he wrote a book called One-Sided Christianity. Uh-huh. And what he said was that in the Christian faith, it... Um, you have the the part that deals with the afterlife. You have baptism. You have uh, communion, mm-hmm. but there's also a social involvement that's called that Jesus is concerned about the poor, the marginalized, the disinherited. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so I began to so as I began to read the, read the Bible, I realized that uh, my friend who wrote me from um, who's the Trumpite, mm-hmm. he doesn't understand this one thing that sin is not just a personal matter. Um, there's a group, a rock and roll group called Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, yeah we're just listening to them coming in. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Right. I think they take their name away from a, from a speech that was given at, at UC Berkeley years ago by Mario Savio, who was a uh, who was a great activist back in the early '60s at the height of the real movement. Mm-hmm. And he said that there's he talked about the machine, and there's a machine that. Uh, sin is not going to the sin is going to the store stealing a candy bar, but there's also sin that's systemic. Yeah. It is evil that's systemic that creates poverty and perpetuates it. And I, my, if you ask me where I'm at right now, it's it's how do we deal with that? How do we how do we uh, deal with that systemic sin? And also, how do we get challenged ministers to go beyond the walls of their church mm-hmm. to come up with some 21st century ministry? Mm-hmm. Because when you're in the inner city, every Sunday you see people going to um, church with floppy hats on, and mm-hmm. you know they're mm-hmm. but they they're culturally so disconnected from the people there who really need mm-hmm. the message. Mm-hmm. I, I minister to gang members. I minister to people who are caught up in all kinds of stuff. Back when I leave here tonight, this little later on, I'm, I'm going to be speaking. In, uh, I have a Bible study at Glide Memorial Church, and if you want to, you can look that up www.glide.org. Mm-hmm. Glide is the number one social service provider in the city, and it's also a, a healing center. It's uh, and Glide deals with. If you go to the front of Glide, you're going to see a lot of homeless people there. Mm-hmm. They're there day and night. Mm-hmm. So the church does not separate itself from the community. Mm-hmm. And my prayer and my my question that I ask myself is, how do we bring the church out of this malaise, 
this dark era that we're in mm -hmm. to where we have a flaming passion like Jesus had. It's, it would say in the scriptures that Jesus would walk, he, he was moved with compassion. Yeah. He would walk past someone that was suffering. And I've met so many pastors who are just so apathetic. I just can't understand it. Yeah, yeah. The, what, what's the, what's the, there's a Greek word that compassion comes from, like splagnatsoi. I'm, I'm butchering it, and anybody who's listening that speaks Greek is just going to get on my case. But it translates in the bowels. Yes. The bowels of, of your being. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, it just, it's, it's that deep. Um, and that's what compassion is. And there's, and, and the lack of it. Um, the institutionalism of of the church, yes. uh, separated from the Jesus movement of of the kingdom of God, um, yes, a completely different thing. And so, trying to uh, you're trying to awaken that in in your community, but I think it needs to be awake, you know, brought out in in every community and you know where the churches are. So what uh, what are you what are you doing that seems to be making a positive impact, and what kinds of things are giving you hope as you're doing this work? Uh, as I speak, speak to young people, I, I gain hope. My, my hope has really um, dwindled in the past few years uh, mm. as far as the church is concerned mm. because many of the people that I've found who really do the work, who go out into the streets and, and minister to the homeless, the poor, the marginalized, they're, they're either not Christians or they're, or they're not church people. Mm -hmm. because the, the thing has become so hardened in cement that it's hard to challenge it. But I've written a book recently, it's called Street Cred, A Hood Minister's Guide to Urban Ministry, and it's going to come out next month in, okay. in June, and it's a challenge. It's a no-holes-barred, hardcore challenge to the church to wake up because we were at a critical moment. Uh, this is the center of where, uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement. In fact, somebody from Oakland actually gave it the name Bla hashtag Black Lives Matter at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we have young people who are looking, who are, who are just giving up on the church because the church leaders are not leading this struggle. You look in, uh, in if you go to Oakland, you'll see people living underneath freeways in ten cities. These were our neighbors two years ago, yeah. but because of the gentrification, because uh, we have a problem here where people came from uh, all all of your um, industries like Yahoo and. Uh, Facebook, uh, all, you know, all the Uber, they all, mm -hmm. all of these tech companies all the tech company, yeah. have moved here. And so there's limited housing. And so what has begun to happen is the housing prices have gone up dramatically. And so that you go to places like the Mission in San Francisco that was once almost entirely Latino, or this neighborhood where we're sitting. We're right now in a place called the Fillmore, which was once called the Harlem of the West. Mm -hmm. And it was, a, it was a black epicenter where people from all over the South came here to start a new life, but were all eventually pushed out. Mm. So you, in Oakland, you have the issue of uh, this is happening. But years ago, the African-American clergy would be the people that would be the ones that would come out in force and really go down to City Hall and, and raise King. You know, Dr. King came from a tradition. That's why people could follow him. And that tradition has begun to die. So the people in the Black Lives Matter movement, the people who are fighting uh, to, to uh, change things here systemically in San Francisco against police brutality, they're not, they're not usually ministers. So when you ask me, um, my hope is not as, as dwindled in the church, but I'm ready to fight. 
Okay. And I'm ready to bring that word. And I'm, I'm looking to go, not only when I, you know, I speak, you might think, oh, he's only talking about the black church. Well, when you look at the civil rights movement, what you have to realize is that there were people from every walk of life and every race mm-hmm. who came in to fight in the name of justice. And so many of, my, many of the allies that I, if I could bring my allies in here, it would look like a rainbow because yeah. they're from every walk of life, every color. Yeah. And they're just people that want right. Um, if we're going to, uh, our community is, is dying, is swimming in blood because of the genocide that's there. Uh, it's, it's losing hope because of the police brutality mm-hmm. that we are, are facing. And then, and then we have gentrification. You have lack of it. The educational process has failed us. So you have kids in the 21st century who are not going to be able to get the jobs that are going to be produced uh, that, are, that are at a decent income. We need people outside of the community to help us, to join hands with us. Somebody living in the suburbs, somebody might be listening to this and say, you know what, I can do something, you know, because mm-hmm. you don't have, like in Oakland, you don't have to live here. The people that help me, a lot of them, some of them I've never met. If you look at the shoes I'm wearing right now, the person who sent me those shoes is, it was in Arizona. I've never met the person face to face. So uh, so we need allies and people mm-hmm. to really start getting a grasp, start reading and start listening to voices outside of what you might have heard growing up. So we're in Rochester, Minnesota. Yes. And uh, that's, I mean, 100,000 people. So it's a decent-sized city, but it's nothing massive. Mm-hmm. Um, really well-educated well educated population, um, very kind of financially well-off. Um, and it seems that there's a disconnect between that and uh, not to say that there aren't real problems to deal with in Rochester there absolutely are yes but um that seems very disconnected from some of the realities that I think you might face every day and hear about living here so what does someone who's in Rochester Minnesota where that's so foreign what what's the step to to engage and help help make a change step number one open up your computer go to amazon.com and I want you to purchase a book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. The New Jim Crow uh, was written by a lawyer who used, to, who used to live in Oakland. Her name is Michelle Alexander. And she wanted to write us a, a story, a treatise about injustice in the criminal justice system. So she invited people to come in from the community who had been arrested and, uh, and, and maybe done some time for something they actually didn't do. And so a young man came into her office one day and he said, I'm the prime candidate. And he had all kinds of paperwork. And they thought, fine, this is the perfect person that we're going to use to confront the issue of mass incarceration in America. Uh, because as you know, when, when, Mr., uh, when Mr. Reagan started the war on drugs, uh, the incarceration rate skyrocketed in the African-American community. And uh, most of that is due to uh, systemic injustice. And so she wanted to prove that thesis, and so she said, I'm going to use you, and, then, and, he, and she figured that, so somehow she began to talk to him, and she realized that he had a criminal record. He'd been arrested for drugs. And, and she, said, she said, well, um, I can't use you because you know, we, you've got a conviction record. He became irate. He, started, he had papers that he had gathered, all of his documents, and he threw them down and threw them up in the air, and he became screaming and hollering, and he said, they got all of us. They got all of us. There's none of us that, that were, didn't, weren't able, were able to escape this. And so she didn't know what he was talking about. Well, in Oakland, there was a group, they called them the Oakland Riders, and there were corrupt cops who would plant drugs on people, beat people up, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and incar- who incarcerated a lot of people. 
And so um, she began to investigate that and realize that how, how widespread this corruption exists. And so it starts, you might see it at the basic level, where it's the police department who has brutalized people. The, the, uh, and so the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense started in Oakland. Because, because people were being brutalized by the police and there were two young men, one who was the son of a preacher who said, we, we can't take this anymore. And they got guns. And back when carrying a gun was legal, they would, they would patrol behind the police. And so when the police would pull up to somebody, they would come out with guns, with shotguns, and they would say, and they would make sure their rights were read. And if they, if they caught the police brutalizing people, they would step in it. So the, mm-hmm. the Black Panthers were one of the most famous Black power movements. Well, not black power. They weren't really black power activists. But they were, it was one of the most famous black community movements ever. So getting back to mm. Michelle Alexander, she wrote this book called The New Jim Crow. The old Jim Crow was when it was decided that black people couldn't go to the you know certain restrooms and eat in certain restaurants, and you had a second-class citizenship status. What she began to tell us was that the rate of incarceration is higher today than it was for slavery in 1851. There are more people in, in the prison system today than there were enslaved in 1851 in the African-American community. And a lot of that is, to, is, is systemic. So I would encourage anybody to, so you're saying, well, you know what, that um, I'm here in a place that's, you know, where there's not really a hood and some of the things you're talking about. If you live in the United States and you benefit from the, the good things in the United States, you are a participant in the what we call the prison industrial complex. There's a you can go online and get go to prisoncomics.com and there's a if you don't read the, want to read the whole book you can read of Michelle Alexander mm-hmm. read prisoncomics.com okay. and it's a comic book and it teaches you how that um, the, so they'll set up a California has built 21 prisons in the time that it built one university. So oh, so wow. so so you have this two worlds. Mm-hmm. And so that so that they've they built this world that creates a world where people are going to go to prison and and it'll take I won't get into the whole story but I would say please buy that book or go on YouTube and look up her speeches okay and I, and I think I, I saw it and I hope I get the stat right on your uh, on your website that African Americans make make up thirteen percent of the population of of the country yes and fifty percent of the incarcerated population. That's right. Wow. 51%. 51. Well, let's just take, let's think about marijuana for a second. Okay. Um, so marijuana is going to be in the ballot in, in November here in California, more than likely it'll be legalized. Mm-hmm. It's it's halfway there now. Mm-hmm. But in most of the, I grew up in New York, New Jersey, in that area, it's not legal. Mm-hmm. So it's, the statistics say that for every one white person who gets arrested for marijuana, four black people will be arrested. So, but black people and white people smoke marijuana at the same rates. Okay, um, and so um, it's so there's a, an inequality within the mm-hmm. system itself, mm-hmm. and it's it's massive. So that's one of the reasons that you have this. Agree- so so if you don't look into the matter, mm-hmm. you know I love the book of Job because when Job was going trying to clarify himself before God, he he began to talk about the good things that he had done. And one of the things he said was that when the widow came, he, the widow's heart sang when she ran into him, mm-hmm. and he would go back if somebody there was an injustice. He would he would he said he broke the fangs of the wicked. And if somebody came to him with a matter that, of it, that was unjust, he would search out the matter. 
it's most people who don't live here in the hood are going to say, oh, well, that's because those people are bad. They're lazy. They're crime, you know, they're crime prone. Mm -hmm. But I would urge you, especially if you say I'm a born again Christian and I believe by those tenets, search out the matter. Mm. Search out the matter. Mm -hmm. Music and activism. Mm-hmm. And they go together, and we were watching some of your the videos on your website. Yes, um, striking, uh, and really appreciated them. Uh, talk about how music and activism go together, like peanut butter and jelly. Okay, <laughs> I learned that a long time ago because yeah. in our community, um, Pete Seeger wrote a song called "We Shall Overcome" mm-hmm. years yeah. ago, mm-hmm. and in uh, that song was the the. People when people are in, pr- in prison or they getting beaten when they you know where they were f- their feet hurt because they'd mark walk for miles in the hot sun in the south they would sing we shall overcome mm-hmm. and it gave them fi- fire and y- yesterday when I went to see Bernie um, there was a woman who sang a song called how I got over mm-hmm. oh and, and you know it's a very kind of a dignified event but I'm on the pulpit and I'm just <laughs> trying my best to hold because I'm part Pentecostal yeah. <laughs> you know like I'm part Baptist and part Pentecostal okay. and that Pentecostal side started coming out so um, and, and then you had Curtis Mayfield back in the 60s mm. People get ready, mm-hmm. and he had moving mm-hmm. on up. And he had a song where he said, uh, "Do what your leaders tell you to." There are coded songs, right? Right. And so now you have the hip hop generation, and I love hip hop. Yeah. The first time I heard hip hop was before there was such thing, such thing as rap music, rap records. In fact, rap records probably hadn't even been dreamt of. Yeah. I went to visit some relatives and bought in um, in Brooklyn. I was mm-hmm. in New Jersey, and uh, and this guy had two turntables outside in a park. And he was talking through a microphone, and people were dancing. And that's my cousin. What is that? And he said, "Oh, oh that's just a new thing they're doing, doing out here." And I'm like, "That's <laughs> kind of odd, you know." Yeah. Coming up, but, and he's not even singing; he's talking. Mm-hmm. And uh, and later on, I, I came to New York, and I fell in love with hip hop music. Mm-hmm. And I became, became a rapper. I called myself Incredible Mr. Freeze, which is an amazing name. I was I, when I saw that, I'm like, uh, "Yes, yeah, sweet." Ah. <laughs> And and uh, I wrote a song called "Back to the Scene of the Crime," which you could find on my on my website, Rev Harry Lewis Williams. Dot, uh, dot us. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, the song is uh, says, "Great Grandpa came here on an ocean liner from the African coast to South Carolina with a west trip, no time to pack. I guess he didn't know he wasn't coming back. Mm-hmm. Like a criminal, he came here in chains. They led him around like a horse on the reins, and when the ship reached shore, it was quite a shock." Because they tied him to the auction block. They worked him in the field till his back was sore. His address was a shack with a cold dirt floor. Another man took full control of his life. Once he got in debt and sold Grandpa's wife. Though he knew all the words to the flag salute. And he could play Yankee Doodle on a wooden flute. The only sight he saw of this glorious nation was the view of the cotton on the plantation. They broke him down until nothing was left. And this is what he said with his last breath. Tell the children my story and make them heed it. Forget the past, and you will repeat it mm. back to mm. the scene mm. of the crime. Mm. And so I wanted to get a message through the, uh, that this, to the to the young people in the inner city. I was young at that time, and I wanted to tell them that we cannot forget where we came from because we're in a struggle. And uh, later on, when the record came out, the BBC heard somebody from the BBC heard that, and they they uh, they brought me to, to England and to Wales to perform mm. that song. Mm. Mm. And so I started realizing that with through hip hop music, you could tell people things that they might not ordinarily hear 
it, you know, and they're hearing it in repetition. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I had, I, when I went to college, I started rapping. I, my dream was to be a famous rapper. Uh-huh. And I, I came up with people who, who did become famous. If you look at my website, you can, you'll, um, you'll see I have an interview with Daddy-O. And mm-hmm. Daddy-O was, uh, was, I remember being rapping with them in the projects in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then one day, years later, turning on the television set, and there he is on MTV. <laughs> So I was, mm. it was wow. in an you know, amazing time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But, but an amazing I, time and amazing place. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you would see, back in the old school days, you would see the famous rappers riding the bus with you. Like, I'd come home and say, yeah, man, you know, I knew so-and-so and so-and-so. I met so-and-so. And they're like, you're right. But, uh, but back then, it was just like these people lived in the neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, I realized that, especially today, you've got people like Immortal Technique, who's a... Uh, who was a famous rapper? He does conscious rap, mm-hmm. and a few years ago, uh, he was here on the the Rock the Bells tour, and a friend of mine, Cesar Cruz, you're gonna hear that name a lot. He's gonna he's a he just graduated from Harvard. Mm. Um, Cesar's a community activist. He invited Immortal Technique to come to his backyard to speak to gang members. So every we're all in the backyard. He invited me to come that day. We're all in the backyard eating tacos, mm-hmm. and here's his you know one of the tour bus pulls up. And the guy gets out, and I'm like, You're, that's, this is the guy from the videos from TV. And he sits down, he's eating tacos with us. And he gets up and he's talking all of this philosophy and history mm. and ancient mm. history and this really esoteric stuff. Yeah. And these kids are just like right with him. I mean, these are, you know, hardcore hood kids. Mm-hmm. And you realize to do this music and this culture, he was able to reach them. So I've said, man, if mm. we got to use that in the church, but that's a hard sell. Mm-hmm. Music is is like a, especially hip hop is almost like a religion. Mm-hmm. It's more than music; it's a culture. Yeah, yeah. It, it influences the way that people dress, how they think. When Barack Obama was struggling in the polls in two thousand and eight, and it came down to the wire, you know, he didn't reach out to to Reverend Jesse Jackson. He called Jay Z mm-hmm. and said, "I need you to meet me in, in Detroit and mm-hmm. get out." <laughs> That's and this mm-hmm. is how you know because he, the, he he has such a high profile in the community. I was working with um with homeless kids a couple of months ago and this one kid would come in every day and he just the first thing he wouldn't even say hello he would just go to the computer and turn on hip-hop and watch videos mm-hmm. and he'd be hypnotized by that mm-hmm. and so one day i walked up to him and i said you know what i'm my dream is to reach young people like yourself and he was you know kind of you know tough guy mm-hmm. and he goes he goes no offense man but uh he goes i'm I'll, i don't want to be reached i'll reach myself and like, okay. Later on, the kids started rapping out loud. And he said, okay, oh, then he spoke to me again. He said, okay, okay, OG, let me hear you spit something. <laughs> and so, Go time. Yeah, go time. <laughs> he goes, I'm not going to listen. And what he's saying, in essence, is I'm not yeah. going to listen to any sermons. But if yeah. you want to reach me, yeah. here's your pipeline. Here it is. Yeah, yeah. My, my greatest mentor is the Reverend Dr. J. Alfred Smith Sr. He's a legend. When he retired from ministry, Arnold Schwarzenegger came to the party. Wow. And, and he started a church. He was a pastor of a church with 100, probably less than 100 people were there in the church when he started. It became the, one of the largest churches in Oakland. And um, he, he says, I don't know what the, the, the room looks like, the rooms look like in heaven, but I, and I, don't, know what, I don't know anything about the temperature of hell. Because I'm, he goes, but I'm very familiar with the nasty now and now. Mm-hmm. And he and uh, that gets him in a lot of trouble, but he says, "Man, we have to deal with the world outside of the door, and if you can't do that, you know, you're you're you have a dry as dust religion." 
Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been an honor, and I just uh, we're so thankful for this opportunity, and uh, I'm just really thankful for your listeners who have tuned in, and I feel rich for being able to share these minutes with you guys. Mm. We do too. Thank you. Thank you. I had a teacher one time who told me that a prophet is one who calls out the fault lines in society. Systemic injustice, targeted violence and pain. The prophet calls these things out and says the whole damn thing is coming down. We must pay attention to it. We must act. People with names like Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and many more, they cried out about the injustice even as they mourned the indifference of the people around them. Indifference of people who were called to so much more. I heard a prophetic voice in the OG Rev, Harry Williams. He tells us about the economic realities in his city and many others that make the drug trade economically attractive for many young people in spite of the horrific risks. He looks at a systemic reality where more African Americans are imprisoned today than were enslaved in 1851. He speaks of the systemic problem where African Americans represent 13% of our population, but make up 51% of the inmates in prison. He calls back to the words of Jesus, who himself was quoting a prophet, I have come to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. He says his hope in the church has dwindled in the past several years because it is not doing what it is called to do, caring for the poor, marginalized and oppressed, and living as Jesus modeled and taught. Harry, he's calling me out. He's calling you out. He's calling us all out of whatever kind of malaise, indifference, and compassion blindness we find ourselves in, and he's calling us to action, like all of the other prophets. He sees things that many people do not, cannot, or choose not to see. So can we rely on his eyes, hear his voice, and then take a step? And maybe the first step is educating ourselves, reading one of the books, checking one of the websites, or or listening to one of the resources that he was sharing. Maybe it's meeting the neighbors where you live and discovering where the ache in your community is. But whatever the next step is, for you or for me, maybe our next action aligns with those old, old words shared by the ancient rabbi. I have come to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free. Now what does that look like in your neighborhood, in your community? What is your next step? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We were so thankful to meet Harry and to learn a bit about the incredible work that he's doing. If you want to hear more about what he's up to, visit RevHarryWilliams.us or check out the links in the description.
For our next episode, our friends at CD Health in Turlock, California will be sharing their work in mapping the genome of the human spirit. It's an exciting new way of understanding how our spiritual well-being influences our health, and we can't wait for you to hear it. Again, thanks for listening to the Sandbox Podcast. If you want to stay in touch with us, sign up for our email updates via our website, connect with us through Facebook and Twitter, and be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Most importantly, share this podcast with someone who might like it. There is always more room in the sandbox. Until next time, we'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. 